According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, looking at verses 14 through 17, and kind of uh, rewriting these verses in a way, uh, splitting them in half. Uh, Paul does a lot of back and forth in verses, in all these verses, going back and forth between some on the one hand and others on the other hand. And he goes back and forth between those two hands, two crowds that have been motivated to preach because of Paul's imprisonment. And uh, there's what we're calling the good guys, and then there's what we're calling the bad guys, all right? And even the bad guys, though, are saved, and that's what's interesting, is these are, these are preachers in the, uh, among the believers there in Ephesus, or whatever the center of his imprisonment is. Some uh, nearby believers are motivated to preach because Paul is, uh, is in prison. And uh, some are doing so for right reasons, and some are doing so for wrong reasons. And even the ones that are preaching for wrong reasons, Paul kind of laughs to himself and says, ha, 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 Jesus is still getting preached, okay? Even if it's from this bad crowd that's doing it for the wrong reasons, uh, someone's still going to hear the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, in that, I rejoice. So we'll pick up where we left off on Wednesday. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, recognizing that God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness and calling upon your faithfulness, Father, that you would take hold of this message and minister to your children. We thank you that the study of the Word of God is not a human activity, it's divine. Father, we thank you that you have made the uh, complete provision. Each one of us is indwelled with God the Holy Spirit, and uh, the Spirit communicates to the Spirit, Father. The Holy Spirit empowers my communication gift. And the Holy Spirit uh, receives that and uh, through the living human spirit of each believer that's here, that's in fellowship, that's hungry for truth. Father, it's a glorious thing that uh, nothing that takes place today that glorifies your Son is going to be the product of human effort. And I thank you for that, Father, so that your Son receives all the glory because it's all by grace. We call upon you now to, to teach your word, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are dealing with this middle portion of the chapter here, what we're calling the greater progress of the gospel, uh, or my circumstances have turned out. I go back and forth calling it different things, but uh, I'll probably settle on the greater progress of the gospel, because that's what Paul's circumstances have turned out to become. I, I would have you know, brethren, in verse 12, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so greater than it would have been otherwise, remarkably enough, since we would not have chosen this had we been given the option. Uh, We don't run with endurance the race that we want, we run with endurance the race that's set before us. God's in charge of that. And He very frequently puts us in circumstances and ministries and places that we would not choose for ourselves. And yet here we are with greater progress for the gospel. Thankful that uh, that the Father knows better than we do in, uh, in all these things. Uh, As we reach point three, Paul's progress in the gospel and well-known imprisonment produced goads, goads to action among two widely divergent groups of believers. And so they were motivated. And some were motivated for right reasons and others were motivated for wrong reasons. But the source of the motivation, the trigger event, was the same for both groups. The trigger event was Paul's circumstance. It was Paul and his imprisonment. And we see this here. Um, verse 14, most of the brethren persuaded by the Lord, don't, don't have trusting there, that English bothers me in the New American Standard Bible, it's not pistuo, it is not trust as we would think of trust, it is uh, patho that we've already had earlier in the chapter, and uh, patho that we've had several times in Paul's writings. Paul's very fond of the verb patho, that to persuade in the active voice or to be persuaded in the passive voice. And and sometimes even to obey when uh, uh, that passive voice reaches its final extent. So most of the brethren being persuaded by the Lord or obeying the Lord because of my imprisonment, I'm going to stick with persuaded, being persuaded by the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage. And so we have a, 
an abundant courage, a parasuo courage as it relates to this. Far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so this is what we see. Um, this, these goads to action. What is it that will get a believer you know, off their duff? What is it that will get a believer just engaged to recognize that, that biblical Christianity is not a spectator sport? That uh, the will of God is more than than uh, studying, more than learning. That there's a point to studying, there's a point to learning. It's, uh, it's a, a means to an end, and what we're saved for are the works prepared beforehand. It doesn't say that each one of us is saved for Bible classes prepared beforehand, that we should sit through them. It says we are saved unto works that are prepared beforehand, that we should do them. All right, And that's what it's about. And of course, how do we learn about that? through the Bible classes that equip us and train us and equip and, and uh, that we sit through and, and so forth. All right. I'm not trying to mock Bible class. I'm saying that it's a means to an end. And the end is why we're in Bible class here this morning. And so the same goad hits these two groups and they couldn't be more different. As we see um, some, verse 15, to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Well, that's terrible. That is absolutely terrible. Why, why even bother? You've got to go to action, you get up and you do something, but it's motivated by envy and strife. Really? Does that drive what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it? And, uh, you know, clearly that's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. That's going to go up in flames in the judgment seat of Christ. And, uh, but some also from goodwill. And we've got this marvelous Mende construction here that you learn when you study New Testament Greek. And we got on the one hand, we got on the other hand, and it's being painted here back and forth in this, in this kind of a, of a contrast. And so what Paul's doing in each of these verses, he, he's doing this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What I'm doing is blending them all together. So I'm taking the good guys in one subpoint and the bad guys in another subpoint, and I'm creating a long extended run-on sentence. And uh, in so doing, I'm hoping to have an economy of, of effort, an economy of study, whereby we can, uh, short of doing nine word studies in the next eight weeks, kind of see the, the full story behind each, each of these halves. So the good guys and the bad guys. All right, let me read the rest of these. Uh, verse 16, the latter do it out of love. Okay, That envy and strife crowd has no love whatsoever. But um, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And again, I appreciate the fact that we have that, that link in terms of, of love and knowing, right? That had, been, that had been Paul's prayer earlier in the ch- chapter, that love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment, all right? Recognizing that agape love is the, uh, the intellectual or the mental or the, the thinking process, not the feeling process, uh, there was feelings in that prayer, but it was after the mention of agape love. Okay, Same thing here. We have agape love with knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Okay, And so there's an awareness of the will of God. And uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, that envy and strife crowd, completely oblivious to the will of God. No idea about it, not knowing about it, not even understanding it, no love, just envy and strife knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, back to the uh, bad guys again, um, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. And we'll see, the Bible does give us good ambitions, and we should have ambitions, but not the selfish ambitions, not the ambitions Satan would promote, not the ambitions that this cosmos uh, philosophy would promote in this fallen world that we live in. So they, uh, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Back to the good guys again. From pure motives. Uh, back to the bad guys again. Thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Thinking to cause me distress. You know, there are some people that have made it their mission in life to cause other people distress. And how do you explain that? Why? I mean, goodness, where does that come from? Well, it does, and it, it happens, whether it's Satan or the world or whatever it is, just, uh, you know, they get the notion that if they can make your life miserable, they will somehow feel better, or they will somehow feel a sense of achievement. I don't know. What is it that they think or they're going to come? Maybe they are successful. Maybe they can make you as miserable as the day is long. Then what? You know, what, what have you really done? What is that? Uh, what's the goal? 
And, uh, well, they probably don't have it, but they do it anyway. And so we see it there, causing Paul distress. What would really cause Paul distress? Preaching Christ does not cause Paul distress, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Even if it's with the wrong motivations. So their whole goal of causing Paul distress backfired. Total boomerang, came back, he wasn't distressed in the slightest, he was excited. He was so excited, no distress anywhere, he was so excited, he sat down and he wrote a book of the Bible. Okay? We have Philippians, because, in part because this crowd was trying to cause Paul distress. Isn't that great? I love that. All right, so under this we've had some sub-points starting off, um, again, with most of the brethren. Not all. There's still some. You know, however many are left over once you talk about most, there's, there's some, not even this is going to get them, you know, in action. Not even this is going to goad them to the point that, uh, you know, how hard-hearted are you when all the goads in the world just keep poking and prodding and you just sit there, okay? Yeah. Most of the brethren, Paul's chains, those were the chains manifestly in Christ, they were persuasively emboldening. I think if, if you don't let Christ persuade you, then you can't let Christ embolden you. They go hand in hand. And uh, it, it comes about in, in this way. So they were persuasively emboldening by Christ. Now, um, these were the subpoints. Let me get through those. Patho and Talmao, the kind of daring that is the audacity kind of daring. We spent a lot of time on that. Um, there's other kinds of daring that speak of actual courage and danger, uh, but this is really more of the audacity. This is the how dare you kind of daring, and, uh, and it's, it's extraordinary the way that it's used in a positive way, not a carnal way, okay? And I uh, spent some time dealing with Moses because that was his big complaint too, was that he wasn't equipped, that, uh, that God needed to find a better tool, he needed to find a better speaker. Moses said, I'm not... Uh, I'm not eloquent. I've never been eloquent. And you know, for a guy that's not eloquent, he sure did a lot of complaining. We have verbally explaining to God how non-eloquent he was. Okay. And so in Exodus 3, Exodus 4, Exodus 6, again and again and again, he kept uh, complaining about it and God kept persuading. And I love that. See, the persuasion comes as, as God very patiently rebukes and he very patiently communicates and he very patiently um, does these things. And uh, so we spent some time in Exodus working on that. Now, uh, dealing with the good guys. Let's go to subpoint B then. And what I did was I took all of the phrases and all the snippets and all the elements of verses 14, 15, 16, 17 that applied to the, to the rightly motivated crowd, okay? And I strung them all together into, into this long sentence. Daring to speak without fear. That's verse 14. Daring to speak fearlessly, off abos, without fear, okay? Daring to speak without fear because of goodwill, which is actually good pleasure. There's a whole realm of doctrine connected to good pleasure, and we're going to see that as we work our way through the Bible verses there. Good pleasure, okay? In so many respects, good pleasure speaks to the plan of God itself. God is the one who accomplishes all things after the counsel of His will. It's His good pleasure that He's bringing about. A definition of sovereignty is, is not that God can do anything, it's that God does all that He pleases to do. That's a biblical definition of sovereignty. It is all about His good pleasure. Daring to speak without fear because of good will or good pleasure, out of love, knowing God's appointments. Out of love, knowing God's appointments. And we'll have some references there as well that speak to our appointments in Christ. What is the will of God for each one of us? Finally, from pure motives. And these are all the, the uh, combined uh, expressions that apply to the right side of the, of the equation, the rightly motivated crowd that has been goaded into action. All right, so let's start with the uh, aspect of uh, fear. Daring to speak without fear. Now, that idiom without fear is curious to me because it's in some respects technically not true. But uh, we... we that's only if you're a word geek and you want to be technical about it. Usage makes it true, so let's, let's use it as it's being used. But the idea, I, I think, of being fearless, of having no phobos, is, is, is um, we have to understand it for what it is because there's, there's the fear of the Lord and then there's fear of people, right? Human fear. 
And, and the Bible will use the same word for both. It uses the same phobos in the New Testament, it uses the same yare in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, so the, the vocabulary doesn't help you in this. And you can learn Greek, you can learn Hebrew, you can find your vocabulary, you can do your word studies. doesn't help because it's the context that determines whether the fear is rightly centered or whether the fear is wrongly centered because it's the same word either way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So if, if that's the kind of fear we all want to have, right? And so technically, I mean, if you're going to be technical about it, these guys aren't fearless. They have the fear of the Lord, that, and that's what makes them fearless in the wrong kind of fear, in the fear against man. See how that works? And so when we use the expression afabos, when we talk about fearless, we want to be without fear. And it's the only way to be without fear is to have the right kind of fear. Okay? And that might seem awkward or it might seem... Um, I don't know, difficult, but it, it's, the way the new, it's the way the Bible uses it. Absolutely. You want to be without human fear? You want to be fearless in facing man and facing tests and circumstances? Fearless in facing a martyrdom or, or whatever it is God wants you to, to face without fear? Then you, you need to have more fear than you've ever had before, just fear of the Lord. Okay? So when you have the maximum fear of the Lord is when you're going to have the minimum. It's like uh, you're doing a a calculus equation or something and you're finding the you're finding the limit okay and you're going to find the limit of maximum fear for the lord and that's going to take you to the limit of the maximum uh non-fear the minimum fear of man and that's probably too confusing but all right so daring to speak without fear if you want to be fearless and you can be fearless have the maximum fear for for the word of god for, for god himself okay Daring to speak without fear. Because of goodwill. Now, this goodwill is good pleasure. And this is what is going to come back again in Philippians. This is what uh, we have in other passages of Scripture. So let's take a look at these. Uh, verse 15, of course, to start this. Some from goodwill. And we've we got to use the biblical definition of goodwill, not the world's definition of goodwill, right? Because there's plenty of counterfeits out there that, that claim they can be moral, claim they can be good, claim they can... Uh, have uh, you know beneficial uh, ministry towards people, and they can do so without Christ, without the Word of God, without the Bible, and so forth. They've, they've created a human definition of goodwill, which is you know secular humanism. We want to have the biblical definition of goodwill, which is God's good pleasure. We see it here in chapter one. It comes back again in chapter two. All right, where we understand that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure, okay? And in verse chapter 1, it's translated goodwill, and chapter 2, it's translated good pleasure, and that bugs me to death, okay? Same expression, same term, same concept. Let's uh, understand it for what it is. So if I'm going to be motivated to speak, motivated to serve, motivated to, you know, the ox goads hit me, and I'm getting up, and I'm serving Jesus, and I'm doing whatever, Okay? It's got to be motivated by goodwill. That's got to be part of it. But is it my goodwill? Or is it God's goodwill? Whose goodwill is it that motivates what I do? See? Because mine is going to be relative and finite no matter how you slice it. His is going to be infinite and eternal. And we're told that He's the one that's doing it. He's the one that's at work in you. That's the Father, by the way. At work in you, both to will and to do. To will and to work. For his good pleasure. And it goes on to all things without grumbling or disputing and other motivations that are listed there as well. Okay? And so I think fundamentally, it is uh, if we adjust our thinking to his thinking, then it's not really, maybe it's more splitting hairs than, than anything else, but it starts with God's good pleasure, not ours. Okay? It's his good pleasure. And we may find that the ministry he's called us to do is not one that we initially have much pleasure in at all. But then we learn in obeying Him that His good pleasure working through us becomes our good pleasure. We become very delighted. We, we learn. And it could be, you know, after a while. But Paul said he'd learned the secret of being content. He'd learned uh, to quit asking after three times, asking to have the thorn of the flesh removed from him. God had to tell him, oh, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is, is perfected in weakness, right? And I expect God told him that the first time. Told him that again the second time. Told him that again the third time. 
And then finally on the third time is when Paul accepted it. Okay? He said, all right, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. I'm persuaded that this is, uh, that this is your good pleasure. And so he learned to make it his good pleasure. He learned then to boast in the weakness. He learned to say, great, if this is what God chose, then this is what I'm going to celebrate. And so we learn these things. Um, and, and it's interesting. And, and when you do all things without grumbling or disputing, we're going to see that it's a so that. There's an outcome. There's a consequence in verse 15, 215. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. Now you already are. You're already under positional truth. You're already uh, a child of God surrounded by these these pagans everywhere, these unbelievers. But then we get to prove that. We get to demonstrate that. We get to documento that for all the world to see. And those same pagans that are different than us are looking at us and it's proof, it's demonstration to them under the documento teaching that we're not them right? We're not them. And, uh, and so there it is. All right. We have another expression uh, that we should be familiar with in Galatians. If you're with us in the Galatians series, or if you just know Galatians anyway, Galatians 1 and uh, in verse 15, we discussed this. Part of Paul's background we get, we get a lot of glimpses into his childhood and different things. Um, Galatians 1.13, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And some of us have similar backgrounds, and you might think back and say, man, I remember my years under maximum legalism. <laughs> okay. And uh, some of us were a part of that, and some of us did well or didn't do so well. But whatever event, the grace of God got us out of legalism and got us under a grace ministry. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And that's the thing. If you, if you are good at legalism, you can thrive. And you can, you can do better than the next guy. And that's kind of the point, <laughs> right? And you can thrive and you can uh, be superior and you can know you're superior and you can let everybody else know that you're superior and uh, let everybody else know that they don't measure up. And that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what it all is. But then it goes on to say, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, it goes on to say, was well pleased, was well pleased to reveal his son in me. All right, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So the Apostle Paul's calling to apostolic ministry, uh, he didn't go to Jerusalem and consult with. Uh, with his uh, you know, predecessors, with uh, his uh, seniors, and those with seniority on him in the apostolic office, he went immediately out to the wilderness of Arabia. He had personal cemetery, uh, seminary, sorry, seminary uh, personally taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you. Okay? He was taught by Jesus Christ in the, in the uh, wilderness. He says so here in Galatians as well. His gospel didn't come from man. It came from Jesus Christ. Anyway, the whole point being, if you recall this, there are three events that are spoken of in, uh, in verses 15 and 16. And uh, it's the same God who did the first two is the same God who did the third one. So the God who set me apart even from my mother's womb. Okay, that's the first thing God did. God let the Apostle Paul be physically born. Okay, God's in charge of that. God opens the womb and God safely delivers from the womb into this world. And in the sovereignty of God, Paul experienced physical birth. Then secondly, by the grace of God, Paul experienced spiritual birth. And we see that in the second expression. So we have God who set me apart even from my mother's womb and God who called me through His grace. That's the second verb that God did in this verse. All right? This gets overlooked, and it gets blended with the third one wrongly. Keep the verbs distinct, and it's the God who did this, the God who did that, 
It's the God who did those first two things is the God who was well pleased to do the third one. Okay? And so, well, when, when did Paul get saved? When was, he, when was he called? He speaks in other passages about his calling. All right? He speaks in other passages about how Christian parents can minister to, Christ, to children. He talks about how the sacred scriptures lead to eternal life when he's writing to Timothy. And I believe that was his experience. And so uh, it was not the Damascus Road when Paul received eternal life. It was the Damascus Road when God was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's the whole point here. Three activities, two that were passed, and then the God who did the first two is the God who did the third one. So um, in any event, his physical birth, his spiritual birth, and then his call to ministry. The fact that God was well pleased to reveal his son in me. And um, so that, with a purpose that, I might preach him among the Gentiles. Remember, we're saved unto good works. Paul was uh, brought, given, brought into the church age and ushered into the apostolic office so that he could have ministry to the Gentiles, become the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's the uh, description there. But keep in mind that what we're gearing at this morning is the goodwill, the good pleasure. It's God. It's, he's accomplishing his good pleasure. He's not saving you so that you don't go to hell. That's kind of a side effect, okay? It's his good pleasure to save you. It's his good pleasure to put you in ministry. It's his good pleasure to bring you in Christian growth to glorify his son. The whole thing is he's providing a bride suitable for his son. And the fact that we benefit is the process, okay? You know, thank God for it. But it's not for our sake, it's for his son's sake that the father is equipping us in this way. That the Father is well pleased to work in and through us for His good pleasure. That's, uh, that's remarkable. All right, that's Galatians 1.15. How about Ephesians? Give you a preview because this is a passage I'm preaching on uh, Tuesday at uh, Mike Snyder's service. Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 9. And both verses, by the way, fit within the the sentence that is verses 3 through 14. One great big long sentence, the longest in the Bible, the longest in all known Greek literature, okay? It just goes and goes and goes and goes and it does what your high school, uh, what Roberta Hawkins told you not to do in uh, Essay Fundamentals. She was a she was a vicious grader when it comes to long run-on sentences and, and uh, being able to structure a paragraph better than that. And uh, so she would not have approved of this, but this was the Holy Spirit uh, inspired Paul to write this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, sentence doesn't end there. Some Bibles put a period there. Okay, there are modern English texts that try to break it up into multiple sentences with better punctuation and periods and whatnot. Um, one long sentence, one long sentence from blessed be all the way down to his glory in verse 14, okay? And uh, that's how I requested, and they're going to print it that way in the, in the uh, program for Tuesday. All right, just as he, that's the Father, by the way, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Is that the Father or is that the Son? Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's debatable and some will disagree. You'll have scholars and linguists and pastors and people that would take that as the Son, but it's better to take it as the Father and I think we can prove it conclusively. We are called to be holy and blameless before God the Father. Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren and as He is blameless before the Father, so too you and I will be and are even now positionally blameless before the Father. Before him in love. Or is it before him, period, and then in love he predestined us? No. Take the period out of there. The in love can go either way, though, and that's a debate. Uh, We would be holy and blameless before him in love, predestining us to the adoption as sons. He, that's the Father, predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, again, the Father, according to the kind intention, there it is, of His will. Okay? 
So it's all grace, but it, uh, it also involves his good pleasure, the kind intention of his will. His will is never separated from that which pleases him. His good pleasure, here it's kind intention. To the praise of the glory of his grace, that's the Father's grace, the Father's will, the Father's grace, which he, God the Father, freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. That ought to be capitalized as a name for Jesus Christ. In whom, or in him, in whom, that's Christ, capitalize your H or capitalize your W if uh, you're going to make it a whom, relative pronoun. We have redemption through his blood, obviously, God the Son, not God the Father, through the Jesus Christ blood on the cross. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Father's grace or son's grace? Father's grace, thank you. Uh, which he, God the Father, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of his will, the Father's will, according to his, and here it is again, kind intention, the Father's kind intention, which he purposed in him, that's the Son. Okay? with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. Not the dispensation of the church. You know, it's remarkable because this is so, Ephesians is so, uh, you know, so much mystery doctrine and so much that contains to the church. But in this, in this introductory sentence, um, this dispensation of the fullness of time is not the church. Okay? The church is the bride in him, but the goal is not the church age. It's the new heavens and new earth. It's the dispensation suitable to the fullness of time. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. You'll notice there's no more under the earth. The all things is in heaven and on earth. In whom, or in him also, we have obtained an inheritance. See, so you and I are in Christ and just as the Father's looking to that fullness of time and Christ is looking to that fullness of time, you and I need to be looking to that fullness of time. We're not looking to the millennium. That's this earth. We're looking to the fullness of time. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay? The summing up of all things in Christ. The millennium is not the summing up of all things in Christ. The millennium is simmering resentment and rejection of Christ. Uh, culminating in Gog Magog at the at the conclusion. Um, where was I? Um, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end, that we who are the first to hope in Christ, you know, we are the first stewardship. The bride is the first stewardship ever to receive eternal life, to become born again based on the past completed work of Christ with a resurrected, ascended Savior, with the, uh, the helper having been sent. We are the first stewardship to be living in this living hope. Okay? An Old Testament believer could get saved but did not stand in this living hope as you and I are. We are the first. To uh, hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Well, aren't we already? Oh, just wait. Just wait. In whom you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his, God the Father's, glory. All right, so there it is. That's uh, verses 3 through 14. It contains both verse 5 and both verse 9 that uh, speak to God's good pleasure, but it centers on His plan. And it centers on His plan in Christ, not us. Okay? The fact that we're in Christ means we partake. We're, we're partakers of a heavenly calling. We benefit from Christ's benefit. Uh, we are fellow heirs with the heir of all things, but it's Christ that is the center of the Father's plan. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. See? And these, uh, these patterns become vital. I mean, this is some of the deepest stuff ever. And uh, the reason why we, we're holding off on Ephesians until we're done with Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, then we'll, uh, 
we'll tackle Ephesians, Lord willing and rapture pending. But the depths of doctrine right here are, are just extraordinary. Okay? And this was my introduction to Michael Snyder. Uh, one of the very first conversations I ever had with Michael Snyder when he and Judy were just visiting was, was over this passage right here. And he brought me his homework. He brought me his, his paper to look at this because he took this passage. He color-coded the whole thing. He was, he was breaking down the differences between God the Father and God the Son. And, and he was concerned that maybe he had not gotten, he missed one or he had misapplied one or that somehow he, there was something he wasn't seeing in that so he wanted me to review it. And, uh, and so I'm just... And, and, and so I'm looking at this and he was explaining to me how he used Logos Bible software that he's been using Logos for years. And I'm like, really? You know? So I'm, I'm getting to know this, this uh, amazing brother named Michael Snyder. Okay? And out of this text. So I'm going to speak on that on Tuesday and I'm looking forward to sharing that. All right. So, uh, it's, but it's God's good pleasure. What is pleasing to the Father? What is pleasing... Uh, as he works, because everything he does, he's pleased with all that he does. And so if we're his fellow workers, why do we keep insisting on putting, you know, shoving him off to the side and, uh, you know, saying, not your will, but mine be done, right? We just, uh, we just shove God the Father off to the side and we do what we want to do. And then we ask him to bless it. What? Okay. Instead of asking God to bless what we're doing, why don't we do what he's blessing? Let's put it around in the right order when it comes right down to it. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Another expression here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So get past the prison epistles, you get to the T books. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. There's five T books of the New Testament and they're all in a row and they're all right there. Okay? Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. Um, and so here we see that yes, God has good pleasure. We develop the same good pleasure because it's reflection of His good pleasure. And if, it, if His good pleasure is at work in us, then we can express it as if it's our own as well. And I think that's what Paul's doing here as he discusses this. So he talks about when he first arrived that it wasn't uh, with wrong motivation. And then you talk about a neat parallel text for our study this morning because this proves, again, you can be busy in ministry for all the wrong reasons. You can be busy, absolutely, and that whole crowd, you can be busy in ministry, not even saved, right? Because that, that horrible crowd that's going to stand there on Judgment Day saying, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did this, we did this. That was a whole crowd of very busy people in ministry. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. They don't, they're not even saved. And they're busy doing all their religion, trying to earn glory. But then there's saved ones. Likewise, they're going to be in heaven when they die, but in the meantime, they're, uh, they're serving for all the wrong reasons. And Paul says, you know, we didn't do this. You know that uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, remember the Philippian jailer and the beating and they were thrown in jail. As we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. That just emboldened them. It's the same concept we're seeing in Philippians right now. The conflict just emboldened them. Angelic conflict ramps up, great. Smile. Thank the Father. You know you're onto something, okay? You know that, man, the adversary isn't pleased with what I'm doing. That's good news. If, if this conflict wasn't happening, I'd be concerned. <laughs> Lord, what am I doing wrong? Why is, why is the devil happy with what's going on here? For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. You see how that connects with our study here in Philippians? That whole crowd, that, that bad crowd that was motivated by selfish ambition rather than purity? So he says here, our exhortation does not come from error, impurity, or by way of deceit. But just as we have been documazo, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. See, we want to hear well done from him, whether or not the people that heard our message care or liked it or, you know, even if they hated it. If the father says well done, then 
we've accomplished what he sent for us to do. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or others. I think that's what that selfish ambition does. It's seeking the glory from men. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And this is what he's speaking of here. This good pleasure that the Father has this good pleasure and Paul's reflecting that good pleasure. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased. There it is. That's our term that we have here in Philippians. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Does this sound like a hireling or does this sound like a shepherd? Okay, And Jesus taught that. Jesus taught that in in John chapter 10. There's the hirelings and then there's the shepherds. And uh, not just preaching, not just giving information, but imparting his very soul, imparting his very life. And we see it described there, because you had become very dear to us. Anyway, I like that text. I find it very parallel to Philippians chapter 1. I think as a sister flock, Thessalonica was a sister Macedonian church to Philippi. And I'm not surprised that there's a lot between Philippians and Thessalonians that, uh, that resonates like that. All right. Finally then, um, some text in Hebrews I want to share with you this morning and stuff that will be a benefit for us in not only this series, but the Hebrews class. It all comes down to the good pleasure of God, His good pleasure, His good will. Hebrews chapter 10. And we have the term that's used in verse 6 and verse 8, and then way down to verse 38, comes back again. The... um, My favorite chapter is chapter 10 of Hebrews. Uh, spotlighting why I wouldn't trade the church age for anything and why our provision is so awesome and uh, compared and contrasted with what Israel had to work with under the law. The law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things, not the substance, but the shadow, okay? You and I live in the substance, and we live in the substance by faith, because faith is the substance, okay? Not the shadow. Can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near, all right? And those sacrifices is the reminder of sin year by year. And every year, here we go again. Once again, Day of Atonement. Once again, here we go again. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How can animal ritual accomplish the eternal purposes of God? It's just a picture. They, they used animal ritual. That's, that was their PowerPoint. Okay? That, was their, that was their visual aid. That's how they learned. And it, it was useful. It communicated. It represented very well. Blood was shed. Animal died. Someone that didn't do the sin paid the price for the sin. And uh, blood was shed and, you know, Adam and Eve were clothed. And there's a lot of doctrine in that, in that symbolism. But let's know the reality. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says. So think about that. Here's, the, here's God the Son who empties himself, who comes into the world, who lays aside his privileges. And in that whole doctrine of kenosis we've got coming up in Philippians 2. And so you might think of this as his... Um, his last words that he utters in, uh, in glory before he kanaos, okay? This is his declaration as he departs the ivory palaces, as he submits, as his soul spirit then uh, enters into the womb and the father impregnates that womb. And uh, there we have it, Okay. He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Leviticus didn't please God the way 
Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied him for all eternity. The good pleasure, the only pleasure he drew from Leviticus, from the the animal sacrifices, was through the shadow doctrine looking forward to seeing the reality in Christ. So in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I have come to do your will, O God. And this is it. This is what he voices in obedience to the Father. Remember, Isaac walked up the mountain of his own free will. He walked side by side with Abraham. Isaac carried the wood. How about that? Just as, uh, of course, our Savior carried the cross. And in agreement with the Father, he walked up the mountain. Here's the Son agreeing with the Father, willing to do this. After saying uh, above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. Um, eh, Let me let that go. I'm going to let that go because I think I want to save it for next hour. (laughs) We're, We're going to get to it next hour in the Hebrews class. But the idea is Mosaic law was never intended to be eternal. Mosaic law was never intended to be permanent. If it could have been permanent, then we wouldn't need a cross. We wouldn't need Jesus to come in the flesh. If, if, if they could have made them perfect, well, then we'd be done. That's verse 2. You know, would they not have ceased to have been offered because worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins? If, if, the, if the Levitical sacrifices could have done what Calvary did, then God would have stuck with that and saved His Son, Calvary. All right. And so uh, this is growing obsolete and ready to disappear. And um, there's, uh, there's aspects there. If you back up to chapter 8, you're going to see that. Uh, 8.13, whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And that's the point when we see why it is that law was a shadow looking forward, but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, uh, so verse 6, verse 8 speak of this, of the good pleasure. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And so uh, recognizing that Levitical sacrifices weren't going to please the Father, he says, here I am and uh, send me. And he does. He goes, he lives as the earthly walk and, and he goes to the cross. Eventually the theme returns again when we get down to verse 38. And this is in the midst of a long context also. Um, verse 32 says, remember the former days. Remember those former days? What were those former days? Okay, well, I've got former days, you've got former days. Uh, I don't like to remember them and maybe you don't either but we all have former days and in their case what were their former days and he starts to describe these former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings do you remember when you got saved or it doesn't say saved there it says enlightened okay so remember those former days when you understood that jesus was the christ and you accepted him as the Christ, and you crossed over from being Old Testament believers to New Testament believers. You remember the ridicule that caused? Do you remember the persecution that caused? Do you remember getting fired because uh, the rest of the, the Levitical priesthood would no longer accept you as priests? Remember, these, these recipients were former priests. And you know why they're former priests? Because when they named the name of Christ and entered into the church age, they were no longer uh, welcome among their former uh, fellow priests, okay? So uh, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. You better believe they were hunting them down. We saw what Paul was doing with with, uh, followers of the way. What do you think the Sanhedrin is going to do with fellow priests? With some of their own, okay? So uh, partly by being uh, a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Those that uh, had kind of been low-key and kept their faith secret, they didn't keep it secret for long. They stood up and named the name and they identified and said, hey, I'm with them. 
And so they became sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. What prisoners? Their fellow priests that were being held. And accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, but it has great reward. All right, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And this, again, he's going to quote scripture, and this comes from Habakkuk. Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. How many times does that get quoted in the New Testament? A bunch of times, right? But, but here in Hebrews, he goes beyond that phrase and he expresses the next phrase and says, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Okay? And this isn't a, an issue of a believer losing their salvation, but this is an issue of a believer who should know better, who shouldn't shrink back, who's not uh, walking according to the good pleasure of God the Father. Okay, And keep in mind, that Exodus generation, he had no pleasure in that generation. They died in the wilderness. None of them went back to Egypt, but none of them made it, only two made it into the promised land. And that's the whole point. These warnings are not loss of salvation warnings. It's loss of good pleasure warnings to God the Father. And the, and the Sabbath rest that's available for us today in, uh, in our Christian walk. All right, so understand good pleasure. And good pleasure should be motivating all we do, should be motivating every message I preach, should be motivating every uh, diaper you change in the nursery, should be motivating every, every work of service. There's a property committee meeting today, and, and it should be for the good pleasure of God the Father when, you know, stuff gets done, okay? Not just, it's not just, you know, maintenance that an unbeliever can do. This is the good pleasure of God the Father that uh, those that are saved by grace are motivated by grace to accomplish these things. All right. The next expression is out of love, knowing God's appointments. And I think this is key also, if you know what you've been appointed to, if you know what you've been appointed to, in Luke 2.34 we have the expression that's used there, uh, appointed for the rise and fall of many, Luke 2.34. And as is curious to me, Jesus is born and Mary takes the child into the temple. And uh, remember, he was born under the law, and so all the observances of law were being kept, including eight days. And uh, whatever day of the week it was, even if it was Saturday, guess what? They're working. Uh, because on the eighth day, every kid, every boy that was born on Friday has to be presented the following Saturday in the temple. And uh, that means that these priests and Levites are working and breaking the Sabbath. All right. Or not. They're not breaking the Sabbath. Okay, that's the point. When you're serving God, you're not breaking the Sabbath. Um, so, uh, when eight days had passed before circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And uh, the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Okay? If it's a girl, the womb's not yet open. But every male. No, I guess that's not true. The girl does open the womb, but she's not presented before the Lord. That's the difference. Okay. The first child does open the womb. Um, Anyway, here's Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. They've been 400 years without a prophet. And now they've got a prophet uh, named Simeon, and he's not allowed to preach. He's not allowed to stand up or declare, thus saith the Lord. He's just a quiet volunteer in the, in the temple, looking for the consolation of Israel and not dying. And I don't know how old he is. Can you imagine? How long has he been looking? How long has he been waiting? Living his whole life waiting for this moment. And now he can die. Uh, but it had been revealed to him by the Spirit he would not see death before he would see the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. When the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation 
which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and a glory of your people, Israel. <coughs> and his father and mother were amazed at the things being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed. Now here we have it. And this is the next phrase in Philippians uh, that they're speaking without fear because of goodwill or good pleasure, out of love, knowing God's appointments. Do we know God's appointments? Do we know, and you might think of this in the sense of the, uh, the purpose for your life and existence, right? Your perp- the will of God in your generation. Um, Paul knew his, Jesus knew his. Do you know yours? Why are you on this earth? Yeah, figure it out before you're gone. <laughs> All right? When you, when you understand, wow, this is why I'm here. And there you go. Um, as appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. All right, then it goes on to Anna and some other things. Notice she's of the tribe of Asher, so much for the lost tribes, okay? (laughs) There are no lost tribes. Asher's not lost. Anna knew who she was and where. All right. Anyway, that's the appointment there. First Thessalonians 3, 3 also has appointments. And uh, this, we were just in First Thessalonians. Should have grabbed this one while we were there. First Thessalonians chapter 3. If you know the story here about uh, Acts 17 and how this church was founded, they were only there three, three Sabbaths. They were there a very short period of time and they were driven out of town. And uh, uh, Jason, the, the host of the church, uh, had to put up money to guarantee that Paul didn't come back to town. And, um, and so there was a, a concern. And so it's described here in this way that um, they just finally couldn't stand it anymore and they, they sent Timothy back in as kind of a, an undercover agent, you know, behind enemy lines. Uh, Timothy, probably 10 years old, 12 years old, um, young man. Uh, we sent Timothy, our uh, brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. You know, and you think about it, um, it's, it's curious to me uh, how prepared he was at this point to accomplish this mission. And uh, in his love for the Word of God and his understanding of what Paul was teaching. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. And that's our term, destined. What, do you, what are we destined for? What have we been appointed to? Why are we here? What is God's purpose for us in our generation? And yet, of course, we expect the next generation to go further than we ever did, but we still want to accomplish what we're here to do, why He put us here. And so uh, we see it there. And then finally, from pure motives from pure motives. This purity will be a theme that comes back later in Philippians, Philippians 4, 8, whatever is pure. We're supposed to let our mind dwell on these things. Purity should be a, a factor that should shape our thinking and should shape our ministry. Um, but really, it's a reflection of the form of wisdom that we're following. That selfish ambition comes from the world's wisdom, doesn't come from God's wisdom. And so James 3 addresses this that uh, if you're using God's wisdom, then the wisdom that comes from above is first pure. Remember this? James chapter 3. I turn here a lot just because I like it and it's easy to find. And, and it spells out in black and white terms on an either-or basis, are you using the world's wisdom or God's wisdom? Is, there's no middle ground. It's one or the other. The wisdom from below is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. Well, that's what we're going to deal with on the, the other side of the coin. Because on the one hand, these guys are pure. On the other hand, those guys have the selfish ambitions that we see here. Earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure. That's what uh, Paul describes here. Pure, uh, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Okay? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in that text? I, I sure do. Everybody does. That's why I think it's undoubted, undoubtable that James had access to Galatians before he wrote the book of James. 
in, uh, in that. Finally then, 1 John 3, 3, and I'll let you go. I'm not late as long as the clock doesn't say 10.31. You can say 10.30 in 55 seconds and I'm still on time. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. That's what we're called to do, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this truth, for this day. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.